readers, welcome back to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a Dark Tower podcast with myself, Sean McGurr, and I'm Jay Russo. And we're both big Stephen King fans and fans of the Dark Tower series. And today we're going to be talking about the first chapter of the first book of the Dark Tower, and that chapter is called The Gunslinger. And it is our introduction to the world of Roland and the Man in Black. Jay, I thought we'd start maybe with a quick look at the publication history. Um, I told you before that that's one of my little fascinations with this. Um, and this was a short story that originally came out in October of 1978 in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. It was followed by four other short stories in that same magazine that were eventually collected into what was called a fix-it novel when you take a bunch of short stories and wrap them into one novel. Uh, it was published as The Gunslinger as a limited edition. And what was interesting about that is King thought it was such a different piece of work than his other novels uh, that he didn't take it to his regular publisher. So he went to a sort of a boutique publisher and not only gave him the rights to The Gunslinger, but any other future Dark Tower novels that would be published, which I'm sure in the long run turned out to be pretty much of a godsend for that small publishing house that was known mm -hmm. for doing some fantasy and science fiction. <laughs> um, so that limited edition came out in 1982. And then when one of his regular horror novels came out uh, shortly thereafter, I think it was Pet Cemetery, The Gunslinger was listed as one of Stephen King's other works. And that sparked interest from fans who were like, hey, wait a minute, what's this Gunslinger book I wasn't aware of? Um, it went back to a, a, another edition, quickly sold out, and then a trade paperback came out in 1988. And then after the other first, uh, I think it was the second and third novels were published, um, he went back, King did, and revised the Gunslinger, the, or the, the first novel, in a revised and expanded edition that came out in 2003. And I think that was probably, and maybe you could speak to this better than I could, when he realized that this was going to be part really of a magnum opus and wanted to ensure that there was consistency across what would end up being the eight books of the Dark Tower. He definitely uh, wrote the first book as without thinking in terms of what might come later or if anything ever would come later. And it really did stand apart in every, from everything he had ever done. Um, and in much of what he had done later. And it wasn't until he was doing his final edit on, I think, the last three books. Um, they were, he was kind of writing them simultaneously and, and putting them through the publication process all at once when he realized the first book is very much disconnected from the last. So it needs, it needs a touch. Um, so he kind of just treated it as if it were a manuscript and, um, and edited almost every single page, sometimes just swapping words, sometimes adding whole sections, sometimes pulling some stuff out, but with the goal of updating the language a bit to match his later writing and his, I guess, later skill, and, um, and also to just bring a little bit of closure and con you know more connective tissue for that first opening story that would... Uh, I guess, link it more to the rest of the story and the rest of the world that the story creates. So, Jay, you're going to be better equipped to answer this question than I am. Um, I obviously read this book, uh, as we mentioned in our first podcast, um, in the late or mid to late 80s. Um, 
and reread it probably in the early to mid 90s, but have not read it until this reread that you and I are doing now. So it's been at least 20 some years since I've read it. Um, so I'm not going to remember the differences between the version I read and the revised version that I'm now reading. Did Stephen King George Lucasify this? Is this a uh, special edition where Greedo shot first and, and ruined it? <laughs> or did you find that the the changes that you might be a little bit more familiar with added to your reading experience? I think they added. They stood out to me. Many of them did stand out as I was rereading this chapter. But I think they worked in a good way. Um, I think one of the, the tasty nuggets that a lot of science fiction fans really love is continuity. Mm -hmm. And like one of my favorite things about Futurama, to go off topic a bit, is that it's about a guy who gets frozen for a thousand years and wakes up a thousand years later. And if you go back and then like, I don't know, somewhere 10, 11 episodes into the first season, you meet a new character called Nibbler, and then he reveals that he orchestrated the whole thing. And if you go back to the very first episode when the, when Fry gets trapped in the, <laughs> in the, the <laughs> freezer, you see Nibbler's shadow in that episode. And to me, that was like just awesome. You know, like the, the creators of that show thought about that continuity. They put that detail in. You'd never notice it if you weren't looking for it, but it's there. And what King did in his re-edit of The Dark Tower, book one, was he added some of that stuff in. And it really, it's a straight up retcon, but I think it benefits the story and I think it benefits the reader. If this is your first time through, obviously you wouldn't notice the difference, but I think it would make what comes later more meaningful. And if this isn't your first time through, I think it'll feel like this book is more important than it was before. And there are a couple of things that jumped out at me. I don't know if you want to hear any about them now or. Yeah, I think so. I think if we go, and again, I think just to remind folks what we're going to try to do in this podcast is not spoil anything beyond what we've, we're reading. So I don't think that Jay's going to give away anything that's going to spoil books two through seven. So, uh, just a caveat there, but feel free to let us know a couple of those changes that stood out for you, Jay. Sure. Like one of the things, and I, this isn't a, a spoiler for the plot, but it's a spoiler for a character, um, is uh, there's this uh, King establishes not until I think book two, um, the character of Oi, and this is a creature that's somewhere between a raccoon and a fox and a small dog, and they can, they're you get a little bit of history that these creatures are are known to people and they can kind of talk in a mimic way, the way that like uh, parrots and crows can. And because he's trying to say the word boy, um, they name him Oi. And he becomes a character that stays with the, the main characters of the story for, for much of the, the Dark Tower series. Um, in book one, the original version, there is no mention of this creature or of this character. But in the revised edition, there's a, a just a fleeting sentence where some random character mentions Billy Bumblers, which is the name of the creature that Oi is, and just says that it's a kind of creature that can speak. Mm -hmm. And so to that, that's the type of thing that King has done. And he's 
uh, and without getting into specifics of other changes, I think that's the type of stuff where he's adding some foreshadowing, he's adding that connective tissue. So if, if you don't know that it's coming, it just feels like world building. Um, since I know the rest of the story and I've read all the way through it, I can see like, oh, okay, I know why he's introducing Billy Bumblers now so that later when we meet one, it's not, it doesn't feel so random. Sure. And again, that to the publication history that we talked about before when he wrote the first story in 78 and had no idea this was going to turn into a 3,500 page epic. Um, yeah. Even though he's, he claims that at 19, he wanted to write the next Lord of the Rings tale. So I think he had some pretty big ambitions, even though he, it, it, I don't think he thought it would get this big. Yeah, but I, I, and this might get it just sort of my reading of King period is I've never got a sense that he is one. And I, I'm pretty sure he has stated this, that he is not a big outliner of knowing, Hey, this is how it's all going to turn out at the end. He's very much a, I'm going to start writing and see where the characters and the story leads me. So, you know, I can't imagine even in 1978, even if he knew I'm going to write the next Lord of the Rings, uh-huh. that he knew it was going to end with, uh, how the ring gets thrown into into the pit of Mordor. I think he's very much a, hey, I'm writing this and see where it goes. So to your point, he did have to put in this connective tissue and come back and, and make it so that it all is cohesive at some point. So, so he's yeah, not just so much, so much time passed between writing this first book and writing even the second book. Sure. Yep. So in your opinion, not George Lucas. No, <laughs> I don't think the book is worse. I think the, the book is better for it. All right. Very good. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. We'll just do a brief plot summary. I don't think either of us intend for the the entire podcast to be a, hey, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But really, just as a quick overview, the story in The Gunslinger is um, we hear about a gunslinger who's pursuing a man in black. And in this story in particular, what we hear about is his uh, most recent adventure, which is in the town of Tull. And for me, one of the interesting things, um, well, before I get into that, anything more you want to add from a just sort of an overall plot? I think that really just summarizes what happens in the 70 pages. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, which, again, remembering that this started off as a short story, Mm -hmm. usually short stories do have just sort of one main storyline, right? And this is is it. There's a gunslinger chasing a man in black uh, along the way he runs into this town of Tull. For me, sort of the interesting thing um, was the way that King has structured this story. So it's really stories within stories. Um, We start off with the gunslinger in the middle of a desert pursuing a man in black. And he, early on in the story, flashbacks to his recent encounter with a man named Brown, who seems to be a hermit farmer on the edge of the desert just sort of right he's a desert dweller a desert dweller just barely making it by 
um, in his conversations with Brown, you get the sense that the gunslinger feels the need to tell somebody what has happened. Brown isn't necessarily asking until Roland says, "Are you? do you want to hear the story? Do, do you want to ask? And when, when he does, mm-hmm. he then goes back into a third story. So we're now sort of a third layer in, right? So we've gone right. from Roland to the flashback to Brown, and then Roland tells the story of what happened in Tull, um, which makes up the bulk of the story. Um, and then even, and we'll get to this here in a minute, even within the story of Tull, there's another story within that as Roland is with um, a woman named Allie who becomes his lover. And then they, in tur- or then Roland hears the story of Allie of what happened in Tull prior to him reaching there when the, when the man, or I'm sorry, when the, uh, yeah, when the man in black first came through Tull and, and sort of set up this trap for the, the gunslinger. So I thought that that was a sort of an interesting piece. Uh, I imagine just because the first line is so evocative that that's one of the reasons King wanted to start there with the Absolutely. man, in, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. Um, that's a pretty solid first line, I'd say. Yeah, it's definitely one of the better ones. I mean, it does so much in so few words. It it establishes the setting. It establishes the main characters. It establishes the the reason for what's happening and the conflict within it in just those few words. Yep. And uh, it, it's it's a it's actually a pretty remarkable <laughs> opening line. Yeah. So it makes sense to rather, I think, to start there than start with the gunslinger rode into Tall. And you don't have any idea what Tull is or why he's there. You know, I, I like the, the, the way he starts there. So, And I think it's more interesting to start, in a sense, in the action. You know, lots of movies and, and stories are structured this way where, and in our case, or in this case, the, the action is the gunslinger's pursuit. It, yep. it, that's what's important. That, that is more important than the story of Tull, more important than his encounter with Brown. It's it's his pursuit of the man in black. And without knowing what that's all about or without knowing that that is the prime motivation for the gunslinger, then the rest of it doesn't mean as much. And I th- so I think it's important to start there. It's start with the chase yep. and then explain why he's on that chase, perhaps, or maybe a big event that happened on that chase. Sure, absolutely. And then the whole good and evil, you've already got that man in black, the gunslinger, you've got the the, the setting of, of the desert. We already know just from the title of the book that there's mm-hmm. a dark tower involved in some way. How does that all fit in? I mean, we've gotten all of these very basic images, a dark tower, a man in black, a gunslinger, a desert, um, but it's all very evocative. Um, right. It calls into question, you know, you get the fantasy aspect of it with the uh, the tower, you get the old Western feel with the desert and the gunslinger, you know, obviously a story of good and evil uh, with the man in black. If you've ever read any sort of Stephen King before, you're probably familiar with the good and evil coming out in books like The Stand and It and et cetera. So it's all it's all right there in one line. So um, I agree. One of the things I liked about um, early in the story is that- King's description of the setting is that it was the apotheosis of all deserts, huge <laughs> standing to the sky. I mean, it's like it's bigger than any desert that we've ever seen. It just 
goes on and on and on. And it's not just, it's not just like it's big because you can't see the horizon. It's just, he's telling us this is bigger. This is the, this desert is the world in a sense. Yep. And I think it's maybe a page after that, you know, it all seems familiar. The, the desert, uh, he talks tombstones. He talks about a track that, that he's following. But then you get that that next sort of great phrase that I know has continued onward is the world had moved on since then, the world had emptied. And then you mm-hmm. get the sense that, okay, where am I as a reader? Um, yeah. And you don't get a lot of that answered in this story, especially. You just right. get very much little hints of this. Um, yeah, this isn't Arizona. This isn't West no. Texas. This is. But yet it sort of is. You know, you still get the. Yep. Hey Jude reference and there's still sort of a honky tonk saloon and there's your typical Western town, but there's something quite different. And, you know, later on we see, uh, we hear about the, the, the creature that has a Raven head on a man's body and you're like, Oh, this is definitely not yeah. the world that we're and, in. Is it? <laughs> and, no, and no one has any, like, there's no, Holy crap. I saw a guy with a Raven's head. <laughs> yeah. yeah no one like... seems concerned about that at all. Yeah. So obviously the story of Tull makes up the the big part of it. Um, do you want to get into any of that? I know it it is a very, in some ways, a typical type of Western type thing, right? Stranger mm-hmm. comes into town. There's a number of interesting characters along the way. Usually there's just a town drunk who acts sort of weird. We didn't realize in this story there'd be a town weed eater who had been dead before and has yeah. been resurrected that's a, that's a little odd but uh the whole the whole idea of tall it's familiar and yet a, a different enough and it ties into the bigger story obviously that we're going to get to with with the man in black yeah i i think um tall is i think when i fell in love with the story and fell in love with the character of of the gunslinger um the way that that he did evoke all of the spaghetti westerns that he was in my mind the Clint Eastwood character from the good the bad and the ugly wandering into a town where no one trusted him no one liked him but everybody was afraid of him mm-hmm. and not even all, everybody could explain why they felt these this way about him but there was just something about him that uh kept him apart and and that put him in real danger so you wonder what is this guy walking into and okay the, he's the titular character and he seems like he has weapons that are better than what everybody else has so you know so it's not until we get to see a demonstration of his power that uh, we realize exactly who we're dealing with and it was you know and it's that it's how he deals with the people through the days and days at Tall and deals with them on an individual basis and as a crowd um, that uh, you start to realize that he does have a power over these people. He is, he is something, you know, special in this world and uh, without anybody really coming out and saying it. So, oh, yeah. No. And you get the sense that me being a gunslinger means something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it obviously means something different to us at first, but then when he's able to mow down 58 people, 
at the end just sort of yeah you do get a sense that wow that, to your point he he is a powerful man and, and whatever a, a gunslinger means um at the same time we get the sense also a little bit of the man in black right so i think um during his discussions with the the townspeople or actually i think it's with brown that he makes this, this thing because the, the man in black has also passed by brown uh on the trips and or brown says first he's a sorcerer ain't he and the gunslinger says among other things so you get a sense that not these aren't just two yeah. these aren't just two cowboys right right we, we, we we've seen the gunslinger's power through the guns um but the the trap that he's laid in tall uh the, the man in black and and just the fact that he's a sorcerer means he's something even more potentially more powerful right and just being a gunslinger doesn't mean you know how to aim and pull a trigger there's more to it than that right too um and you get you get some sense of that in this story about tall from his interactions with people and and how he he speaks several different languages and he has knowledge of of uh religion and magic and he seems to have an education that goes beyond mm. what's possible in yep. what we start to learn about the world that the, every time we hear the world has moved on and we meet more people who are like mutated or that have you know the, they're illiterate or they they barely are healthy enough or have enough food to live another day and then this guy walks in and he's like you know tall and strong and throwing and, gold and, around yeah <laughs> you know it's like he he's like he's not just from out of town it's like he's from another another world yep and so so basically what happens in tall is that the man in black or yeah the man in black has come through um a few weeks earlier mm -hmm. um and we learned through Allie's story that he's brought back to life um uh basically what is a an addicted junkie type person right he's addicted to some sort of weed which obviously stronger than marijuana that's sort of driven him crazy destitute but he's addicted yeah. he's addicted in some way um and he's died and been brought back to life in a really sort of uncomfortable way by uh the man in black in a in, in a in a very magical evocative uh way um and he's given Allie sort of a code word right to um mm -hmm. the, the number 19 if i'm right. remembering that right um and the gunslinger insists that you know don't mess around with this but the gunslinger knows that there's a trap and i get the sense too is he knows there's the in, there's an inevitability there right that for him to move on past tall he's going to have to move through this trap yes that there's he, he 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 could have left whenever he wanted to and continued on his journey but you do get the sense that no i'm going to stay here for a few days and see what happens and i'm going to have to confront this in some way right there's there's a sense of both especially the man in black but the gunslinger too that they are both in on the joke that there is there is a cosmic joke going on that they are both um entangled in and they they need to let it play out the way it is meant to be played out and it's pretty clear from comments that the the man in black 
seems to say, like, and even his attitude when he's dealing with the people of Tull ahead of the gunslinger that, or when he talks to Brown, um, that he's letting the gunslinger follow him. Yep. And he's letting the gunslinger slowly catch up to him. There's some method to this madness that he could at any point just completely vanish and never leave a trace and the gunslinger would have no way of finding. And at the same time, the gunslinger knows that he needs to follow him because that's how this works. This, yep. That's how this needs to happen because it can't happen any other way. He can't just sit and wait for the things to happen or he can't just go in a new direction and find what he needs to find. He has to just, he has to go on this this quest. He has to follow the person, the man in black across the desert. Yep. And so that's what he's doing. And, and he sees that he knows this is a trap. He knows that something bad's going to come, but he also knows that it's part of the process. Uh-huh. And if he's meant to survive it, then he's, he just needs to endure it. And just like the man in black, like he sets the trap and he says, and he's thinking, I know the gunslinger is going to survive this trap or, or, but I still need to set the trap. And so, but they're both just sort of winking at each other. Like eventually this is going to get to where it's getting. And, but we just got to do this, go through the motions. But really the man in black is more in on the joke. Like you do get the sense that the joke is fun for him. Whereas I do not get a (laughs) Roland, the gunslinger does not have a sense of humor, as far as we could tell thus far. Yeah, thus far we don't really know <laughs> that he has a sense of humor. Yeah. And he is physically suffering and mentally yeah. suffering on this journey. He's he's lost a great deal. He he remembers, you know, dear friends and and, <clears throat> and loves of his past very yep. briefly in moments in the story that have changed him forever. And even just the act of surviving the conditions of a desert while first on horseback and then on foot with very little water and no food that's you know it takes somebody with his pure strength of will and physical training um to have accomplished that and so it's just it's like but that's where the i think the man in black's joke kind of comes in he's like i need to make this exactly as hard as it needs to be so that the gunslinger feels like he's doing his job correctly mm-hmm. and and if i make it too easy he's gonna think it's a trick and if i make it too hard he'll fail so it needs to be just hard enough i i would agree i would agree um do you want to talk any about uh i think it's important just because it sort of sets up the man in black's ultimate purpose, maybe the, the woman, the religious woman who uh, sort of turns the town against um, Sylvia Pittston, Sylvia Pittston. Yes. The woman who is bearing the man in black's uh, child of a sort, right? (laughs) Yes. Apparently (laughs) this is one of the changes in the original edition of the book. Sylvia Pittston was pregnant with the man in black's child. In this version, she says, She's pregnant with the son of the Crimson King. We don't know Which who that we is. Don't. We don't know what that means, but it's different now. Yeah. But she cries it out when, when uh, Roland, sorry, the gunslinger, whose yeah, name is Roland. We don't learn um, that until the end of the book, right? His name is Roland. Or yes. the, end, the end of this chapter, I'm End sorry. of this chapter. Yeah. When the gunslinger confronts her finally, which is an awesome scene. Like she, <laughs> is a, she is a force to be reckoned with mm-hmm. in in so many ways 
both just her her physical size and her strength and her uh, apparent health mm. um she uh, like something that a lot of the characters keep coming back to is the, this idea of being not mutated um, yes without any deformation I, i've i forget what they called it in the in the book it was like um when they talk about like livestock it's like she is she's another example of the these people who are kind of see, they seem to be untouched by their environment like roland like the man in black sylvia pittston is like a perfect example of a person and and despite her environment despite how much the world has moved on she's not only healthy she's vigorous she's excelling in life like she and she's she is she exudes so much of this that even Roland finds her sexually attractive. Right. Like, you know, like he he knows that she's trouble, he knows that she's poison, he knows that she's yet another trap set by the man in black, but even he can't deny how he is drawn to her physically. Right. And um and he even says, you know, like she questions him and says like you know you want me don't you and he says have you ever met a man who didn't or something <laughs> along those lines and it's like okay you know so i'm trying to picture you know what what's king what's the picture that uh king is painting here you know it's like a a strong muscular stocky woman with creamy smooth skin in a land that is dried up and and gritty and dirty and you know so and right. she's and she's become the leader of the the church the local church the congregation and she preaches you know hellfire and uh you know, a, co and, a common theme with king right i i don't yeah. think i don't i do not think he's big on the uh fire and brimstone uh preacher types they tend to get uh short shrift in his novels and short stories yeah but the uh like the catholic priests they they, they tend to be the heroes <laughs> king is not catholic though which is no he's not <laughs> I guess that's a conversation for another another yeah, episode. I, I have a feeling that religion will come up more than once along the uh, yeah the way here. So, well, let's get to the the real the main set piece here, which is um, the the town turning against the gunslinger and right. him him needing to beat tracks. But um, you're not going to have a character named the gunslinger without having some guns slung, I suppose. Exactly. So, <laughs> so yeah, we, had, we needed to see him at top of his form doing what he claims to have been practicing for a thousand years <laughs> his reaction was automatic instantaneous inbred he whirled on his heels while his hands pulled the guns from their holsters the butts heavy and sure in his hands and of course uh who does he have to shoot first but his lover um Allie coming at him with her face distorted, the scar a hellish purple in the lowering light. Um, and she's begging him to kill her. Like she knows that she's not doing this of her own free will, that she's been turned by the man in black into some sort of not quite zombie like creature, but along those lines. Yeah. It's like she was the only townsperson who was not um, influenced by Sylvia Pittston. She was yeah. instead driven to lead this mob by the the riddle of 19 that she you know she finally gave in and spoke the word but everyone else is the interloper the antichrist satan incarnate yeah. and they're all after him and he's just mowing them down right <laughs> like mm -hmm. 
did you ever think that there was another way? Like, again, you spoke about how powerful the gunslinger is, and he's obviously much healthier than the rest of these folks. He's able to eat, and he's made his way across the desert. Don't you think he could have just beat feet a little bit and gotten away just, from this mob? Just outrun them? Outrun the mob? Or is it, like you said, it's part of the fate that he needs to settle things in Tull and do that with his guns. I, I think uh, fate's a big part of that equation, but I guess you could pick apart the situation and say, well, yeah, maybe he had this opportunity or that opportunity that he could have just left town, but he waited until it was too late. And once it was too late, I don't think he could have outrun every single person. I don't. And even if he did, he would have gotten just far enough that he would have been in the middle of the desert with nothing. Yeah. And he, that would have ended him. So he knew he's like, no, I'm, I'm capable of fighting this fight. And he got to walk out on his own terms afterwards. So, 39 men, 14 women, and five children. He had shot and killed everyone in Tull. And of course, this is all, you know, and, and he finishes up, he gets his mule, he gets his water, he, he eats, eats, eats a little, 17 hamburgers. And, and is on his way. And of course, this has all been told in a flashback, right? So we're hearing this as he tells the story to Brown. Um, right. We know out, he's going to survive. Right. So telling the story we're we're out on the edge of the desert with brown when when we hear this and brown's reaction is just sort of you did what you had to do right and in fact he cares less about what happened there than the reason than than the gunslinger having to tell it which is interesting like i don't think and and whether this speaks to brown or not as being somebody who's just not maybe a person a, a people person but he said there mm-hmm. you've told it do you feel better the gunslinger started why would i feel bad well you're human you said no demon or did you lie i didn't lie and he hadn't lied to the dweller in any way who are you brown really i mean just me he said unperturbed why do you have <laughs> to th- why do you have to think you're in the middle of such a mystery <laughs> so brown really i think Whatever he would have told him, I don't think it would have had any impact on Brown whatsoever. I think he really was just like, if you want to tell your story, go ahead. I'll listen to you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and I think Brown recognized that, like, even though the gunsinger cl- claims to have not been affected by this, I think he was. Obviously, I think yeah. that I think that it, it, it weighed on him very heavily. And maybe it wasn't killing the whole town. Maybe it was killing Allie. Or yeah. maybe it was... Maybe it was that he knew it was a trap and he had to let himself fall for the trap and, and all that. He doesn't get into the specifics, but clearly he needed to get this off of his chest. Uh, I hesitate to call it a confession, but it feels like one. And I think that once the gunslinger said it out loud, he was able to move past it and just set it aside because he is somewhat mechanical yeah. in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you've mentioned this before, maybe not in the podcast, but just sort of even though he is a sometimes portrayed as somebody who doesn't think about things, he does have a lot of thoughts. Um, And the way King writes it, obviously, we're we're in a close third person situation where everything we see throughout this story is from the gunslinger's perspective for the most part, except for um, when Allie's telling the story. And I think there's one one part, it was sort of interesting to me, and I don't have it in front of me, but for the most part, we're seeing things through the gunslinger's eyes, 
but at one point we were in Allie's head and she gives her thoughts on what she's seeing in the gunslinger. That's sort of the only time we switch a perspective there. Mm. Um, but but you it, know, the entire story, including uh, the gunslinger's tale of Tull, is told in the third person. So, yeah, so we don't a, know his thoughts during this. We only know his actions for the most part. For the most part. I think we, it, it's not first person where we're aware of it, but we do get, you know, even when we say something like he felt the grudging admittance in him, he liked Brown. Honestly, he did. You know, we're, mm-hmm. that's still that. You're getting that insight. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of insight. I think it's I think it is called close third person is sort of the literary term. I'm going to be pretentious uh, English English degree person mm. here. Uh, but I, I think. Yeah. So I, I think that that's we are in we are in the gunslinger's head for the most part, or at least right next to his head to some extent. Um, mm-hmm. as as we follow through the story. So we do get, even though he's not supposedly a thinking machine, you know, he's just guns, he does have a lot of thoughts and, and insight into what he's doing, um, even if it's after the fact. I, I realized this years after reading this book, uh, I guess at least once, but probably twice, I got in a conversation with a friend about um, what if somebody made this into a movie? What what would it be like? What would who would we cast as the characters and things like that? And one of the things that we kept spinning around was what would the soundtrack be? There's one song that I kept coming back to that I think would be totally perfect for the movie adaptation of this book. And since there is one coming out in just a few months, I'd be really surprised if they took my suggestion. But when the scene when he is killing everybody in Tull, I think that the background should be the song Hero by Ministry. And that song is totally anachronistic to the time and place. It, you know, it's not a Hey Jude song. It's not something that you could play on the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> on the piano at Ali's bar. But, um, but the song is like just so amped up and so aggressive that I think it just works to the sound of him just shooting and shooting and reloading and shooting and shooting some more. And that's why I think that that song is like, would be perfect for this scene. Well, uh, I think we've got what, three or four months until you find out, uh, yeah. what, what in fact, again, assuming that the, uh, the movie follows the book, uh, we'll see how, um, the music pairs up for that. I, I will admit that I tend not to be a person who sort of instantly thinks of songs to go with it, but, um. I'm 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 interested to see how this all plays out because it 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 does it, it is interesting to see how the filmmakers are going to approach this um because it is such yeah. an it is such an iconic book I think even the casting threw some people off um with Idris Elba and uh Matthew McConaughey um but I'm sure we'll get to that in the in the coming months so I'm Absolutely. looking forward to it I don't know if uh, rereading this for, I guess, now the fourth time for me, um, if it's just like a sense of nostalgia, or maybe I just really am impressed by some of Stephen King's skills. I was really, uh, really kind of blown away by a few of the lines that, that I came across while reading this chapter. And 
just wanted to share like one or two of those just because I liked them so much. One of them was, I think it's on page eight. He's describing the wind. The line is, the wind moaned a witch with a cancer in her belly. Mm. I just loved how much imagery is packed into that sentence. It's not just the wind moaning, and it's not just a witch's moan. It's a witch who is diseased. So it's like there's so much loaded into the witch. There's so much loaded into moans. And then adding disease on top of that is just like, yikes, that is a really awful sound of wind. And <laughs> um, <laughs> I really liked the opening description of Tull. On page 18, King says, Tull was at the floor of a bowl-shaped hollow, a shoddy jewel in a cheap setting. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's, I guess it's something, it's a jewel, but it's, it's a shoddy one and it's a cheap setting. I, I'll, I'll pull out one that I like too, and I might've had my attention drawn to it. I think early on, I think in uh, Stephen King's introduction, but um, when the gunslinger's talking about the camp that he's been following and th they talk about the way that the the fire sticks are laid out to create the fire. Um, oh yeah. I have one from that too. Yeah. I wonder if we both probably the same thing. So uh, they talk about the patterns that, it, that it made. And he's, when he talks about it, it says it spoke of a man who might straighten bad pictures in strange hotel rooms, um, mm. which is very evocative of like, you could just see sort of the OCD person who wants to even, even in something that doesn't matter and he'll never see again, he wants it to be perfect in some way. Yeah. And and it, it's it almost lends a a a bit of levity to this character who seems so driven and dark and forceful that like you could see him while he's almost as almost while he's killing everybody in Tull passes by something that's crooked and straightens it out and then <laughs> keeps shooting, you know, and it's like, you know, ev everybody in the town's dead, but that that you know, that painting on the wall has got to be perfectly level and and what's what's really weird about it is and again it's early on so you don't have i don't know if you really know how weird it is is that do you even think that there's hotel rooms like this in like i'm picturing a motel eight and there's definitely not a motel eight in whatever world that the gunslinger is in right now so that just sort of lends to the sort of incredulity of this is like whoa wait a minute like i can never imagine the gunslinger yeah. in a hotel room with sort of your crazy horse picture on the wall or sunset in the in the background of the the cheap tawdry painting that you've got there so yeah i mean i guess it is a bit <laughs> anachronistic but in some ways if there are towns like tull then there are places with inns and if there are inns then i guess you could stretch it yeah sure but, it know. just it, i think and you i'm assuming you and i are both going to agree about this that king does not get the credit that he is often due as a writer um you know, I think probably a lot of that's just to the genre he writes in. Yes. Um, and the fact that he's very popular, which again is sort of a knock against, mm -hmm. you can't be a good writer if you're popular. And I think both of us would beg to differ with that. Um, obviously, you could find one or two schlocky versions, mm -hmm. you know, in the dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of books and short stories he's read. You can, and I'm sure we'll encounter him along the way here. But for the most yeah. part, I do not think he's given credit for the language, the world building, the um, almost conversational tone, you know, you spoke to the nostalgia piece of it. Um, mm -hmm. 
King just you have a way of picking that up and his books and just being able to read it and jumping right into the world I feel and that's yeah they they feel comfortable yeah yeah right which is interesting because like most of the subject matter is not comfortable but the yeah. writing itself draws you in mm-hmm. to even the most uncomfortable things where you don't ever want to just sort of throw it away and say oh I can't read the schlock it's more of a oh my god give me more give me more <laughs> right yeah the the quote that I had was that was very much connected to that was because you're I think you were talking about the fires yes or um so I had it might be the next line or the line right before that he was talking about the patterns of the ash and I and he he'd written uh the two patterns art and craft were willed together <laughs> and like I just love the idea of like like we hear those two words together all the time. Like, what did you do at summer camp? Arts and crafts, you know? But it's also like they are two poles on the same thing. Uh, uh, like, like there's artifice and then there's just craft. There, There's like, there's a, you know, where, you know, artistry brings you beauty and, and subtlety and, and, and joy, whereas craft is just utilitarian. Yep. And, and this is a, in just that, you know, brief line or a couple of lines, it establishes that the man in black is the artist and the gunslinger is the craftsman. And I think that is also maybe a slight, slightly inaccurate representation of the, the gunslinger. I think he is, I think he is an artist. I think he is something more akin to a dancer. Mm-hmm. who dances with guns rather than a craftsman who just wields tools to to build things or in his case tear them down um but i don't think he sees himself that way i right. don't think he realizes how much art he has in him so when he's talking in this as you put it close third person he's not going to talk about a guy who moves like a dancer he's going to talk about a guy who spins on his heels and shoots Right. And, you know, to that point, I think a lot of professional athletes are that way, right? So there's this idea that, oh, this person's an artist with the the basketball or uh, on the field, when in fact, to get to that point, you have to put in years and years of, you know, there's some natural skill, obviously, but there's years and years of practice and hard work. And that's what leads to that choreography that's near perfection near artistry and that's what you're getting at with the gunslinger right that he's Mm -hmm. put in the hard work he's done you know practiced his shooting he's gone through this training and you know we're only getting hints of it here um right but i'm sure we'll learn more but you know it's led to something which has become the ability to choreograph this beautiful death scene of, of 50, yeah. uh, you know, you know, uh, this dance macabre to oh, yeah, right, uh, take exactly. one of King's own titles. Right. Exactly. Uh, by the way, skeleton crew, I just thought of it. That was the other uh, short story book, uh, 45 minutes later. So we end where we began, right? So he's left, you know, on the trail of the man in black as we move him across the desert. Um, anything you right. want to add is, as we sort of wrap up, this first chapter of the the first book? Uh, no, I think that's uh, everything I had in mind to talk about. For the next episode, if you're reading along with us, we're going to uh, read chapter two, right? That is correct. The Way Station, 
which is chapter two. Well, Jay, thank you for discussing chapter one, The Gunslinger. It was a pleasure. Same here. This was a, a lot of fun. And um, I hope everybody who's listening is enjoying the, the ride. And uh, all right. So, Sean, until next time, I'll talk to you later. Good night. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter feed is at twoguysdarktower. For Sean McGurr, I'm Jay Russo. Thank you for listening.